James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 today. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions, distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who drag and oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. You can sit down. Let's pray. Lord, as we read your word and we are tempted to be despairing as we read this, Lord, I pray that you would turn our eyes to Christ. Preach Christ through your word this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the, of the questions that many of you have asked at some point is, am I really a Christian? It's normal to ask this. It's healthy to ask this. In fact, it's commanded in the New Testament that we consider this question. The, uh, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church to judge for themselves whether or not they're in the faith. Am I really a Christian? Some think being a Christian is a matter of externals. I've been baptized, I go to church, I take the Lord's Supper, I walk to the aisle, I tithe. But the more you read the scriptures, the more you realize that those externals are just that. They are things we do. And they're no more help in determining our eternal security than circumcision or going to the temple or participating in the holy days would have been for the Jews. To be truly a Christian... James has been teaching us we must first of all be brought forth by God's own will by the word of truth. And we saw that a couple weeks ago in uh, 1.18, chapter 1, verse 18. And second of all, we saw last week we must be implanted with the word. We saw that in verse 21, chapter 1, verse 21. To be brought forth by the word of truth 
is James's way of describing being born again through faith in Christ, and that comes through God's work. Being implanted with the word is something that the Father does to us as well. He implants us with his spirit, whom Christ our great high priest has poured out from the whole heavenly temple. But we can't see those things, can we? Nor can we see Christ's atoning work on our behalf that we must trust. We can't see Christ's intercession for us, which we also must trust. We can't see his forgiveness. We can't see his resurrection, his kingship, his kingdom. These are the, these are the foundations of the faith. But we can't put our hands on them. We can't put our eyes on them or hang them on a wall and point to them. And so naturally, at some point in our lives, we ask, are these things true? And as Christians who, who love God's word, we'd emphatically say, yeah, those are true. These are, these are true things. We seize a hold of Christ and, and we live in the hope of the gospel. But at some point, you will ask, are these things true for me? Right? Have, have I been brought forth by God's own will, by his word of truth? Have I personally been implanted with his word? Because if those, if those things have not happened for you, if God has not caused you to be born again, if he has not given you his spirit, then even though Christianity is true, you're not a Christian. So how do you know, how do we know that we... We are in that group. How how do we know that we are being saved by God? There are three evidences that the Bible gives us for the Spirit's presence in us. Three. And all three are necessary. It's not one or the other. It's all three. They all come together like a three-legged stool. Two of those evidences you will find elsewhere in the Scriptures, particularly in the writings of, of Paul and John. So if you've been brought forth by the word of truth and implanted with the word, then you, first of all, you will believe in Christ's work for you. 1 Corinthians 12 says you can only say Jesus is Lord by the Spirit's power in you. 1 John 4 says only the Spirit in us can lead us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that's the first one. Secondly, the Spirit in you will affirm your adoption as a child of God. Romans 8 and Galatians 4 both attest that the Spirit in us gives us confidence in our adoption. It is the Spirit in us that cries out, Abba, Father. So we have faith because of the Spirit in us, and we know our adoption because of the Spirit in us. Those are the first two evidences that the Spirit is in us. But the third evidence... We find all over the New Testament, and particularly in James, and that evidence is that you are becoming more like Christ. Becoming more like Christ. The very language that James uses points to this when he speaks of the implanted word. So if the word is implanted, like a seed is planted in the ground, if the word is implanted in you, then it will grow like a plant. And if it is growing like a plant, then it will bear fruit like a plant. God's word never fails to have its full effect. 
He always produces fruit. And some of that fruit we've been seeing in James. We saw that last week. Self-control over our emotions and our tongues. That's a, a slowness to anger, a slowness to speak. A desire for God's word. A desire to be attentive to hear the word of God and to do the word of God. Other fruits that the implanted word begin to bear are a resemblance to the God who is in us, particularly in our concern for orphans and widows. God has a concern for orphans and widows, so does the Spirit in us. Another fruit is a desire for holiness. God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, God the Spirit who is in us is also holy, and so He's transforming us, so we too have a desire to grow in holiness. So the implanted word bears fruit as it grows into maturity in the heart of a believer. And those fruits give us reason to believe not only that God is for us in Christ, but that he is in us through the Spirit. The word is implanted in us and growing. Those fruits from God like Trials from God in chapter 1, do you remember those? Those fruits are a good gift from God coming down from the Father of lights. The fruits of Christ-likeness are a good gift because they bring glory to God and they give us assurance that God's presence is in us. In fact, I believe that it is a lack of assurance that is very likely one of the issues that the churches first receiving James' letter were dealing with. Lack of assurance. After all, most of them, many of them, were struggling through trials. We saw that in chapter 1. Many of them had lost their homes. They had lost their jobs. They were struggling to put food on the table. And so their response was, maybe Jesus is the Christ, but, but, but maybe his work wasn't for me. Maybe I'm not truly a child of God. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't care for me, and that's why I'm going through this. To which James responded in chapter 1, no. The fact that you are enduring trials actually points to God's love for you. He's, he's detaching you from this world and bringing you up in his kingdom. Trials are not a reason for doubt, not a reason for despair. Rather, our trials are a reason for confidence that God is for us. So in this letter, James is telling the church, God is most certainly for you. But what you might want to examine is whether God is in you. Has he implanted the word in your hearts? Because another fruit that grows from the implanted word, and this is the fruit that is in focus in this morning's text, is love. If God has brought you forth by the word of truth and his word is implanted in you, then you won't only love yourself anymore as you did before, Rather, because of the God in us, result of the gospel, because of the spirit, because of the implanted word, you will love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 8 of our text, James calls this the royal law. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. To call this the royal law is to say that this is the chief law of Christ's kingdom. Why? Because Jesus, our King, said that all of the law can be summarized by two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says something very similar in Galatians chapter 5. 
The whole law, he says, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now that Jesus has shown himself to be the Christ, the king of the kingdom, and now that he has inaugurated the kingdom, the ethos within his kingdom is summarized by the law of love, the, the royal law, the golden rule, as we sometimes say. Love your neighbor as yourself. And James is saying here to, to, to his churches and the Spirit saying to us through James, if you belong to this kingdom... And if the word of the king is implanted in you, then you will see this law of love expressed in your life. It is the fruit of the implanted word, the ethos of the kingdom citizenry. But we're not always expressing this love, are we? In fact, if there is any fruit of the implanted word that seems to be the most difficult, not just for us, but for all the churches in the New Testament, this is it. This is what, as we heard preached from Galatians, this is what Peter struggled with. And the, the Galatian church was misunderstanding this, which is why Paul told them that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then when he gives that wonderful list of the fruit of the Spirit in us, love is the first one. The Corinthian church misunderstood this as well. They thought that the Spirit was most seen in us and in the church through the gifts, like tongues and prophecy and miracles and so on. But Paul had to teach them, no, 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 no. the gifts are great. They are gifts from the Spirit, but the chief gift is love. And if you have all those gifts... Those other gifts, but no love, then it counts for nothing. The Spirit is primarily seen in us through our love for one another. This was also John's exhortation to the Ephesian church in 1 John. If you don't have love for the brethren, brethren you, you, you can have no assurance that you're a Christian. Peter says in 2 Peter, probably after learning his lesson from Paul, that the, he says that the culminating virtue worked in us by the Spirit is Love. And if you don't have it, then, then you're blind to your salvation. You lack assurance. So, so Peter and James and John and Paul, they're all teaching this to all the churches. But they weren't just pulling that out of thin air. Where they, they, they learned it from Christ himself. It is the royal law spoken by the king from Genesis to Revelation. But the, the apostles had to repeatedly Teach the church about love because this is so difficult for us. So let me first define what it means so we're not thinking something different. All right? Let's, let's, what, what does it mean to love your neighbor? It's simply this, to want what is best for them. To want what is best for them. Them, not, not you, right? To want what is best for, you, for, for your neighbor. Love for neighbor, neighbor is difficult, though, it's difficult for us because it's so, it, it, it runs directly counter to our flesh. The, the old man, the old us before Christ. We naturally, according to the flesh, we want what is best for us, not what is best for them, others. And the problem is, is, is not only is putting ourselves first natural to our old selves, but we hear it echoed and preached by the world. Right? Put yourself first. 
This is the basis for the teaching of the world. When something isn't going right in your life, it's probably because you've neglected yourself. And the solution is self-care. Get rid of all those toxic people in your life. Get rid of those people who make you feel uncomfortable, who tell you no and do what is good for you and tell yourself yes. Right? We have entire sections of the bookstore for self-help and self-improvement, self-affirmation, self-esteem. Any counseling you get from the world is going to lean on teaching that you ought to love yourself. And I don't need to go on with this, right? We could, we could just do this all day long. But understand this. Just, just understand this principle. When you hear that stuff coming from you from wherever it's coming from, it's coming from the domain of darkness. It's not coming from the kingdom of the beloved son because the teaching of the kingdom is the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. The churches that James is writing to were struggling with this just as we do. And their particular struggle was in what verse 1, look at chapter 2, verse 1 says, their struggle was, was in what the ESV Bible, the translation I'm using, calls partiality. So if you have an NIV or a CSB or an NASB, your translation calls this showing favoritism. The King James calls this problem being a respecter of persons. I actually think that one gets closest to it. All of our Bibles are translating a phrase from the Greek that literally means taking face. The idea behind this is to base your judgments on the face, on the appearance, to look at the externals, to, to, to see what the world sees rather than to look at the heart and see what God sees. And why do we do this? Why do we focus on appearances? Why do we make these snap judgments? We'll look at verses 2 and 3. The setting that we're most likely seeing here is a meal. The early church's worship gatherings nearly always involved table fellowship. They were Baptists. So a guy who appears to be wealthy based on his clothing, somebody comes in, he, he's wearing what the, the Bible says, shiny clothes and a ring. And today, today we would say, oh, he's a used car salesman. To them, they would say, no, this guy is, this guy is something special. And the church, they see this man come in and they give him the seat of honor at the table. Then a man who comes in who appears by the same worldly standards, by appearances, he looks like he's poor. So he's got to sit on the floor by someone else's feet. And that, we look at that and go, well, that's kind of gross. But, but what this actually means, this is a position of servitude or, worse yet, this is where your enemies would be asked to sit. So this is, this is bad. So why, why would this happen? Well, in the world, this would happen for a number of reasons. But based on what we know of, of James's audience in this particular era and location, knowing this is a strictly class-based society, so there's not a lot of moving between the upper class and the lower class. This is a strict division between the two. Someone who appears to have wealth might be able to help you out later on. But the poor man, he can do nothing for you. And he never will be able to do anything for you. So the thinking goes, if I honor this man who appears to be in the upper class, I might be able to work for him. 
I may be able to, to get a loan from him to, to purchase a cart or an animal so that I can work. I, I might be able to use his mill to, to, to grind my, my grain, or I, I can use his land to grow food for, for my family. All sorts of good can come to me from honoring him. But if I give the poor man a place of honor at the table, nothing good will come to me. He could do nothing for me. In fact, he'll probably be a burden to me. So what's the point? I'll probably have to give up my seat for him. I'll probably have to, to, to give from my own plate to him. Or he may take a seat from someone that I was saving for, uh, a seat that I was saving for someone important. Worse yet, if someone from the outside world comes into our assembly and they see that we're honoring the rich and the poor alike, if we're treating them equally, then they're going to think we're weird. And we can't have that. Now, what James is going to do here, and we're going to get to this, he's going to try and prune this behavior from the church and encourage, instead, good fruit to grow. He's going to give three reasons why the church should not behave this way. But before we get to those three reasons, I want us to search our own hearts to see if we have this same mentality. Do we place a premium on appearances and treat people according to worldly standards. Now, in our, in our culture, in American culture, we are more egalitarian. It's not as acceptable as it was then to treat people differently according to their wealth, unless you're in politics. But think of what our culture values and lifts up. Our culture values and lifts up youthfulness, and style and influence. There, there's, there's a trend in our society to appear youthful and energetic and with it, isn't there? And because we subconsciously know this, we have this misconception that, that if our church appears acceptable to young people and welcoming to young people, then we are acceptable to the culture at large because we're doing something right. It shows that we have chosen well which group of people to associate with. So, so think just in terms of, of your own heart. How likely are you to greet a young family and show them Christian hospitality as they enter the church as compared to how we might treat an older person who visits the church? For many of us, because our culture prioritizes youthfulness, older folks are nearly invisible in a way similar to the invisibility of the poor in James' day? Or how about influence? We might, how might we treat a, 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 a ball player or a celebrity who comes into our church? Think of the last time you found out that a celebrity of some sort was a Christian, claimed to be a Christian. Did that have the effect in your heart of, of legitimizing Christianity? We live, it's odd because we live in a, in a culture of individualistic self-expression and the irony of it is that the most positive thing that you can do for your own individual credibility is belong to the right group. And so if a celebrity belongs to your group, then you get points for choosing the right group. It's the same thing that these churches in James Day were doing, judging folks based on what they can do for you. 
James is saying here, this is bad. Okay, we're just going to put this in very simple terms. This is bad. Don't do this. And he gives three reasons to the church why they ought not to be doing this. Number one, first reason, we should see others as God sees them, not as the world sees them. Second reason, they shouldn't be doing this. He tells them, you're being dumb. The third reason is that this is a violation of the royal law. Okay? So, see others as God sees them, don't be dumb, and don't violate God's law. So, so let's look at these in order. First one, if we have been implanted with the word, then we ought to see others as God sees them, not as the world does. Look at verses 4 through the first part of verse 6. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? You've dishonored the poor man. So the main problem here is that God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith, or the main principle, not problem, sorry. The main principle here, God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. This is, this is not to say that all poor people are saved. And this is not to say that no rich people are being saved. Rather, this is what's happening here. Christ died for the rich and Christ died for the poor just the same. Therefore, just because someone appears from a worldly perspective, so from, from the way that we look at people on this earth, someone appears to be poor, it's certainly possible that they are set to receive an unimaginably great inheritance because they are heirs to the kingdom. So while the world sees only the poor man's clothes, God looks beyond the appearances and he sees in that poor man one of his own sons who is actually extremely rich, supremely rich. And when we tell one of God's own princes to sit on the ground, or when we ignore them or overlook them, we're dishonoring someone who is actually deserving of great honor. That's why James says we've become judges with evil thoughts in verse 4. He's saying we have set ourselves up as the supreme judge of all people, and we believe our judgments to be greater than God's judgments of them. And that's evil. So when God judges someone to be worthy of honor, and we judge them to be worth, to worthless, to be, they're worthless, they're not worthy of honor, we're opposing God. And we're showing ourselves to be of the world and not of God. And that would be the same on any judgment we make about anyone who comes into our church. Rich, poor, old, young, no matter what color their skin is, no matter what their ethnic background, what nation, what state they're from, if we, do, if we judge people according to externals, we are setting ourselves up as the judge. Don't do that. You're not God. See others as God sees them. The second reason James gives is that what the church is doing is dumb. We see this in verses, uh, the second part of verse 6 and verse 7. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, this section is kind of strange because if there is someone who is blaspheming Christ and oppressing Christians, 
it doesn't seem like they're going to be going to church. They're not going to be gathering with the church. They would have no interest in gathering with the church. But that's not the point. The point is this. James is saying, look, by, by your own worldly standards of prejudging people based on their appearance and treating people only according to what they can do for you by your own worldly judgments, you actually should have a prejudice against rich people. They're oppressing you and, and blaspheming Christ. So, so in other words, not only ought you not to judge people based on their appearances, but you're not even good at doing that. <laughs> you're being dumb. You're failing in doing bad things. So, so we should not misinterpret this passage and think that James is saying the church should discriminate against someone who comes into the church appearing to be wealthy. That's not what he's saying. Rather, they should be welcomed in as visitors into the church with the same hospitality that the poor are. There should be no distinctions. Neither should be favored. Both should be welcomed. Because both need Christ. And the final reason, the third reason, gets to the main point of the passage. To show partiality is to violate the royal law. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, now two things we need to remember here as we go into this section, because this gets... Uh, you're going to have to think, okay? Two things we need to remember here. First, for Christians, those who were born again into Christ and planted with the word, the law has been written on our hearts as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So God's will through the Spirit is carried out in us. It is fulfilled in us. Secondly, the law, that law is summarized as love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the thing. And this is what James is persuading us of. In Leviticus 19, that Mark read for us earlier, you find an assortment of laws, right? There were lots of laws that Mark read for you. Lots of rules, lots of different situations where those laws would, would be applied. For, so, for example, when gathering your grapes at harvest, don't pick your vines bare. Leave some of the leftovers for the poor. The principle behind that is what? Love your neighbor. God is showing his people how to consider the poor, their neighbors, rather than thinking exclusively of how to maximize the profits from their grape harvest. Because the old covenant people of God did not have the spirit in them to show them that this was how to love your neighbor. So they required these external rules, these external laws to guide them in that. So think of the other laws that Mark read. Pay your workers the agreed upon wages at the end of the day. Don't put stuff in front of blind people so that they trip. Don't say things mean to deaf people when they can't hear you. Don't steal from your neighbor. Don't hold a grudge against your neighbor. Don't lie to your neighbor. The specific applications of how to love your neighbor were necessary because of the hard-heartedness of the people of God under the old covenant. They didn't have the spirit. So, so James is picking up on this in verses 10 and 11. Do not commit adultery is also an example of the love your neighbor principle. It isn't loving to your neighbor to take his wife. Do not murder is yet another example of your neighbor loving principle because it isn't loving to your neighbor to kill him. 
The, the law in the old covenant was extremely detailed because there is no indwelling spirit acting as a guide for righteousness. Think of, think of this. Think of how you would instruct a six-year-old boy to clean his room. You have to be very specific, don't you? Every single Lego must be put into the bin. Yes, even the heads of the minifigs. You also, yeah, also the, the Legos that you were going to play with later, those also need to go in the bin. The sheets and the covers together must be pulled to the head of the bed and the pillow placed on top. Your dirty clothes must go into, not beside, the hamper. And the clean clothes must be folded and put in their appropriate drawers. Not the other way around with the clean clothes in the hamper and the dirty clothes in the drawers. Garbage must be put in the waste bin. And yes, used gum wrappers and Band-Aid peels count as garbage. We're not saving them for something special. And, <laughs> and you know how it goes, right? After three minutes, he shouts, it's clean! And you walk into the room and there are 23 twigs and a pile of pebbles next to a mud muffins in your good muffin tin. And that's all sitting in the middle of the floor. So what do you say? That's not clean. It's not clean. To which he says, you did not say to pick up the twigs and the pebbles and the mud muffins. You only said to pick up the Legos and the clothes. And he's right. He's not thinking your thoughts after you. Not yet. He doesn't internally know your standard of cleanliness. This is the effect of the law in the Old Covenant. It is an external, extremely specific instruction to which every little aspect of how to keep your room clean must be delineated. Why else would we need a law that says, don't put things in front of blind people to make them trip? Because without the Spirit, we're a bunch of six-year-olds. Boys, at that. But, but once that child knows you and begins to think your thoughts after you, you can simply say, clean your room. And they know exactly what you mean by that. Their standard matches yours. In fact, the full effect, we could say the fulfillment of knowing you and being known by you is that internally, he desires to keep a clean room. He understands the value in it. It becomes instinctual and the command becomes unnecessary. That is the effect of the Spirit in the new covenant. He is the internal guide who changes our desires and aligns our thoughts with God's thoughts. The governing principle of God's laws in the Old Testament was love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, that is the, the, the principle that Christians live by because God has implanted that desire into our hearts. He's given us his spirit through whom we fulfill this and we carry it out joyfully. All right, back to the problem then of showing partiality. There's no Old Testament law that says when you come together for worship, don't make the poor people sit on the floor. There's no rule in the Bible that says that. Not in the Old Testament. You'll see rules about caring for the poor. You'll see rules about not showing partiality in the courtroom. But you won't see any rules about who sits where in the synagogue. Nothing forbidding you from plopping in a, 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 a poor person on the floor. But under the new covenant, because we've been brought forth by God according to the gospel, and because the word is implanted in our hearts, we begin to think God's thoughts after him. Therefore, it isn't necessary 
to have a million rules for every single situation. We have the word in our hearts with the royal law as our dictating principle. And where we need wisdom, where we are, we don't know what to do. What does the Lord say to do? Go back to chapter one. Ask him for wisdom and he'll give it to you. And if we are bearing the fruit of this law, love your neighbor, written on our hearts, then as verse eight says, all is good. You're doing well. You're working well. But if we are living according to the world's standards, and if we are selfishly treating people according to what they can do for us rather than treating them in a way that is best for them, then James says, you have a serious, serious problem. Because we're showing our, our, our worldliness rather than God's wordiness, the word implanted in us. And that gets us into uncertainty about our salvation. That gets us into, into, into doubt territory, doesn't it? That gets us into lacking assurance. Why? Because it, if we lack evidence of the Spirit in us, one of the evidences of the Spirit in us, then we might not have the Spirit in us at all, we begin to think. And if we don't have the Spirit, then we have not been justified by Christ, and so given the Spirit, and if we've not been justified by Christ, we're still under the judgment of the law. And so you, right now, might be thinking, examining your own life and having serious doubts. Was I selfish in the way that I treated someone this week? Yes. Did, did, I, did I make a judgment in my heart that put them down and lifted me up? Did, did I treat anyone differently from someone else because I didn't think that they were beneficial to me? And so begins the spiral of introspection, right? Maybe the Spirit isn't in me. Maybe I don't actually know Jesus. Maybe I'm not elect. Maybe Christ's death was not for me. I'm not justified before God. I'm condemned by his justice. I'm going to hell. So what do we do then? Well, James says this. Look at verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. There are two ways to interpret this. One of them is wrong, and one of them is right. The wrong interpretation of verse 12 is fake it till you make it. If you, if you want to bear the fruit of those who are in Christ, just try harder to be like those who are in Christ. Try harder to be more loving to people. Try harder to be impartial. Try harder to be more merciful. And, and, and to last week's issues, try harder to watch your tongue. Try harder not to become angry. Just do better. We have a, a lemon tree in our backyard that appears to be dead. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's dead. So my wife has tasked me with cutting it down. But what if I instead took some lemons from another tree and hung them to the dead tree? Could I convince Susan that the tree was actually alive? I tricked her into marrying me. but she's actually really smart and I don't think it would work. <laughs> what that tree needs is not lemons from another tree. What that tree needs is life in its veins. Attaching lemons to the tree will not help it, will it? That's all trying hard is doing for you. 
You could put 500 lemons on that tree and it would still be dead. And if you try and fake it till you make it, you'll never make it. Trying harder to act like other Christians is a damning understanding of verse 12. The correct understanding, the godly understanding, isn't so much focus on the fruit, but on the root. Look at, look at verse 12 again. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Emphasis on the are. The indicative, what is true. If you are in Christ, you are to be judged by the law of liberty. So that means you have been freed from the power of the flesh, freed from your old desires, freed from the selfishness that is in you, and freed to love as Christ loves. So if we're treating other people according to our old selfish desires, and if what comes from our mouths is exhibiting our old selves, then we are effectively denying what Christ has accomplished in us. So your focus then should be first on what Christ has accomplished. Look back at verse 1 of our text. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to zero in on show no partiality, right? Because we just are drawn to those commands. We want to know what we can do. What, what, what can I do? But the command is attached to something much greater, holding faith in Christ. That is, clinging to Christ, recognizing that all of your salvation is in Christ. That's where the ability to love your neighbor comes from. It doesn't come from you. It comes from Christ. If we receive with meekness, as we saw in verse 21 of chapter 1, if we receive with meekness the implanted word, that is, if we receive the Spirit, recognizing that this gift is by the grace of God alone, by His Spirit toward us, then we will, by the Spirit, speak and act as those who have been given the Spirit, who've been set free from sin. We will, we will show love towards others. Those who have been shown mercy in Christ live in that mercy. In joy and in love, we show others the same mercy. Contrast that to verse 13. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you are not exhibiting the fruit of love towards others... The reason is not, well, you just haven't been trying hard enough. Rather, the reason is you're not leaning in on the mercy that you've been shown. You're not clinging to Christ. You're not receiving God's mercy. But if you are leaning into the mercy that God has shown you, if you are remembering that by God's mercy you are under the law of liberty, then that faith has the power of diminishing the selfishness in you and increasing the reliance on the word implanted in you. And that's the heart environment where love for neighbor grows and bears fruit. God's mercy in you triumphs over the judgment in you. The judgment that you have towards others. 
And because you're in Christ, God's mercy for you triumphs over his judgment towards you. Let me just say that again, because that, that's kind of it. God's mercy in you. So the, the grace that he's shown you, pouring his spirit into you, the spirit in you, when you're leaning into God's mercy, triumphs over that judgmentalism in you, that worldliness in you. And then, because you're in Christ, God's mercy for you triumphs over his judgment toward you. The branches that bear the good fruit of love, this is just putting it the way Jesus put it, the branches that bear the good fruit of love are attached to the good tree. And, and they receive from the tree what the tree provides coming up from the root. Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Nothing means nothing. So where do we turn? To Christ. Receive the mercy of God in Christ. Receive the nourishing, implanted word with meekness. Less of you, more of Christ, because in Christ and through Christ, we see one another as God does.